0: When a child is diagnosed with a serious life-threatening illness, the entire family is affected. These stories from those families, especially when faced with challenging decisions, will move and inspire you. The parents are courageous and resilient in their determination to keep their family strong. Courageous Parents Network promotes their insights so that others may also find hope and strength. Welcome to the Courageous Parents Network podcast series. Until this year, 2020, there haven't been any treatments or therapies for children affected by the rare and always fatal diseases Tay-Sachs, Sandoff, GM1, and Canavan. The landscape looks very different now in 2020 when there are early stage clinical trials coming online for each of these conditions. This patient disease community is approaching a crossroad. Some will qualify to participate in clinical trials, most will not, and these are early dates regardless. In this episode, CPN's Jennifer Seidman talks with Deanna Pangonis, Director of Family Services for the Patient Disease Group National Tay Sachs and Allied Disease, NTSAD, about how NTSAD is preparing to support its families through this uncharted territory.
1: Welcome Deanna. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. As your community prepares for trials, what concerns have you been hearing that they've been expressing?
2: I think that we haven't heard direct concerns being expressed other than anxiousness about when our trial starting. And they'll ask questions, you know, it, I think they're anticipating maybe not getting into a trial, so they go to expanded access, and they want to know if they can pursue expanded access. And I think they're running through all the scenarios of what could be, might be, won't be,
1: and how are you helping families process that as their head sort of circles around in, oh my gosh, here this comes? Will my child qualify? Will they be ready f- when the trial is ready? What do I do if they don't qualify? How are you helping them with that?
2: We don't go there directly, other than educating them about the process because things that are in the pipeline were held to confidentiality. So we can't address the inclusion or exclusion or any of the details of the trial until it's been approved and then it's out there on clinicaltrials.gov. So um, we can only listen to their anxiety and concerns. And then that also informs us of the questions that need to be answered in anticipation of the trials being approved. So we're collecting those questions. We've been doing education through our e-communications. Once a month, we put something out and we try to address different aspects of what a clinical trial is and the different parts of it. We started our Be Informed webinar series that is addressing those components. The most recent webinar we had talks about what is a clinical trial. On a very basic level, but all the moving parts of one and why. And the next one, we're looking at the regulatory side of clinical trials to help families understand why it takes so long for something to be approved, for a trial to be approved. So we just have to keep repeating the definitions in different ways, keep them informed.
1: What questions are families bringing you about the process? When they ask you about it, are there things that sort of rise to the top that they're most ultimately concerned
2: with? Right now, it's more the, why is it taking so long? And it's the impression that it's taking long means the companies don't care and they're just, you know, they're not caring about the children that need it now because clearly time is of the essence for our families. And how
1: do you answer that question when they say to you, families... The companies or the researchers aren't sensing our need for urgency to get this because our time for our children is so very valuable. And I know, as a family coordinator and a representative of NTSAD, you probably know how that is not really the truth, but that the process dictates the time mm-hmm. in many regards. But how do you help families understand that? How are you helping show them? that the process is the process.
2: So it's very individual to the families. So I have to meet them where they are in that moment. It could be maybe bringing them down where there's high emotion and trying to, you know, validate what they're feeling. It is it is frustrating for all of us. We want things to get going. But then I always follow through with this is this is why and it goes back to efficacy and safety and crossing the T's and dotting the I's, and it's all about you know, them wanting to have the trial be as successful as possible, and then, therefore, helping as many children. So, you know,
1: I'm a parent of a child with a rare disease. I also started a foundation to fund money to build research. And really at the time I was doing it, it was just building sort of that basic research that leads to what are now into clinical trials. So those therapies, gene therapy and enzyme replacement therapy came to fruition during my son's second decade of life, which was at that point, a point at which he was too far progressed in the disease to participate. And I felt really excited and hopeful for the community, for the younger children, and, and of course, I felt really dedicated to making those trials really happen. To get them, as I used to say, let's get to the finish line and make a trial go, you know, out of the lab and into a human. I really wanted it to get there. And as hopeful and as determined as I felt, I also felt an incredible sense of sadness and disappointment because I didn't do it in time for my son. I'm guessing that you have the chance to interface with a lot of families like me, people who are pushing up against that window and that wall where they've worked and wanted the therapy for so long, and then it may just not have been in time for their child. Can you tell me a little bit about those discussions? How can we work together to help families in that situation?
2: I have not had Many of those conversations, but I've had a couple of them. And they are the most difficult conversations when that realization that their child won't benefit or won't be able to participate in a trial. Um, uh, you know, again, going back to validating where they are and just being there in the moment. You know, sometimes there's really nothing else you can say, but. I will say that in a lot of what we put out there in our communications and conversations with our team is to really talk about legacy, because we wouldn't be where we are now without those kids. We stand on their shoulders, and I think that's it's just legacy, we just have to focus on, on
1: that. I am in that seat, right? Mm-hmm. I am that mother and even though my son has passed away I still follow the research and I still want to hear from the families participating in the trials and know what their children are either benefiting from the trial or what what changes Mm -hmm. they have seen and what we can do next steps and I do feel like in some regards that that's a continuation Mm -hmm of my son Ben and the work that we did together. I know with my own experience it helps to share Mm -hmm. that I still sometimes feel disappointed that it didn't happen in time for my son and that I still feel sadness over that, but that I can still be part of the community that's working towards this greater goal.
2: Looking ahead, one of our biggest concerns is making sure our community stays together and that they don't feel the haves and have-nots, yeah. that they are together and can support each other. I've seen little glimpses of that where there have been some children who've been treated through expanded access, and and I've seen the community rally and be so excited for the family and so excited for their child while carrying that grief that it didn't come soon enough for their for their child. So let's talk a little
1: bit about that have and have not experience. I know within my own community, because there are some therapies for some of the diseases in the MPS community that have been on board for a period of time now, and more and more are coming available, but there are still others for which there isn't anything in clinical trial. And it did create a situation where it felt as though at times... There was a group of haves, either I have a treatment for my child or I have an opportunity to participate in a trial, and those that don't have a treatment for their child or don't have the chance or if timing just didn't work out to participate in a trial. And I know our heads can know that that's not the way it really is, but our hearts can feel that way And I know I've talked to other patient disease advocate, family coordinators that have said, you know, they struggle with this within their community. What advice have you gotten or what advice would you give or how do you address that when a family comes to you?
2: We haven't been there quite yet. We've seen little glimpses of it, but I anticipate that by our next family conference that that may be more present. So, I'm in that gathering advice stage and trying to take in as much as I can so yeah. that we can be prepared for that. I mean, I think again it the phone conversations or in-person conversations is just being there, you know.
1: I mean, I think it's a common thing for all parenting components in that even even with typical children, you know, you sort of are always comparing yourself Mm -hmm. to the next family over, right? Did your child read at the same time? Did they walk longer? And when you have a rare disease, you know, you start to evaluate all of those things. Well, you know, my child kept walking till he was X age versus that child over there, you know, it changed. And I think you know, there's a tendency because of that comparison to make categories. Like like mm-hmm. I said, the haves and have-nots. And I think when I have conversations with families, if I can help them to see, first of all, there's the commonality of all parents compare mm-hmm. regardless of whether your child has an exceptional right. situation or not. Right. And then the value in comparison is only when we find unity, not when we find
2: right
1: something that's going to tear us apart and i know it's hard to find that but that's how i try to think about it when i talk with other families in my community i think that's
2: important to find ways to do that
1: also in my own experience i Mm -hmm. have heard from families who are thinking about trials and i worry about this a little bit that something is better than nothing. I hear that a lot. And when families are evaluating a trial, and in your community it's harder because there hasn't been multiple trials to choose from, but within my own disease family, there was an opportunity both for an enzyme replacement clinical trial and a gene therapy clinical trial. So families were positioned because there's a limited population in choosing Is this the right trial at the right time for my child? Are families talking about the risks that they're about to be taking, or are they focusing on, let me just do this because this is the only thing at hand? How is NTSAD helping them understand the risk?
2: We did have a webinar where a family asked, how do you choose? And it's being educated. And having conversations with either the trial coordinator or the sponsor of the trial to get as much information as you possibly can. But in the meantime, we're doing, like I said, with the webinars and in our e communications, talking as much as we can about the trials. It would be great to have to get to that point where you have to decide. You have to choose.
1: Right. I mean... That would be really great. (laughs) It would be really great for every rare disease to get to the point where they had a choice of what they were going to do. I think thinking about trials and educating families to trials is the first thing is you always have a choice. And I imagine since you only have one trial currently underway, you may not have had a lot of experience with the informed consent, but have you helped walk families through that?
2: We haven't worked with families on that yet, but we've advised industry, you know, when they're putting together their informed consent. So, for example, something that's come up is social media and navigating that while you're in a trial and making that clear in their informed consent and talking to them also about how long that paperwork can be and to think about it from the family perspective and educating them about the steps and... Our hope is that we'll see the informed consent.
1: As an organization that you'll have a chance to review it so that you can help families as they walk through it. One of the things that I've often said to a family is when you go, bring a second set of ears and ones that aren't necessarily so attached to you or your child so that they can listen as you're working through the informed consent with the study coordinator and the principal investigator and then you have somebody, an independent set of ears that are listening. Um, And then to know you can always bring it home Mm -hmm. and there's no pressure to sign it on the spot and think about it because you are going to make a decision that's going to have an impact Mm -hmm. on your life in many, many, many ways. I'm supposing that you haven't had an opportunity very much to talk about the lifestyle changes that might be different or that families might have to make along the way during trials.
2: We're anticipating that happening for the trials that are coming up require you know picking up your whole life for years it's you know a little bit at a time it's cuz it's one treatment and then it's going back for checkups but we are putting things in place so that we're here to help families if they're here for any kind of trial and then we have funds too to help alleviate some of the financial struggles that might come up.
1: Yes, and are you coordinating with industry to help work out what they might be able to supply the families and giving them guidance about what families need in terms of housing or, you know, different disability challenges require different kinds of housing environments, require different kinds of Mm -hmm. accommodations. So has industry or the principal investigators been asking NTSAD for feedback on that?
2: We've had conversations, yeah, definitely about that. We've started developing a resource tool for industry. As they approach us with ideas for programs that they want to develop, we can then give them something to help them in their design as they think about designing their clinical trials. You know, the late onset population, it's challenging to get on and off a plane every two weeks or. Things like that. that, Yeah,
1: helpful insights that you guys as an organization have been able to compile. What is the relationship between a patient disease organization and industry and researchers? And what are they relying on you guys to help them figure out? And how does that relationship feel? Because I think sometimes it's misunderstood by the patient population.
2: The number one thing that some of our families will hear from us is Mm -hmm. that we're held to a confidentiality agreement so we can't share everything we know but to feel reassured that we are having those conversations and that we are in the know the families should feel really good about that that we've got their backs and we're bringing the family voice the patient voice to industry reminding them
1: I think the industry has become more and more willing or even craving the need to hear that voice so that they're accurately sculpting their trials, because of course they want a trial to be as successful as possible. And so identifying the things that are going to make those participants feel most comfortable are probably high on their priority list. It's interesting to think about. Because I know a lot of families feel it like it's an adversarial relationship, but it's not. It's a, it's a collaborative relationship.
2: Very much so. And it's to protect them, too. They want to make sure that they have everything right before they share anything with families. They're not intentionally keeping information from them. I spend a lot of time reassuring families that they are working really hard. We're not hearing from them right now because they're working so hard.
1: Yeah, and the process takes time to work through the whole way it has to go, Mm -hmm. and that's hard to understand when time, like we've talked about, is so critical to families and how they feel that urgency. Have you had conversations with a family who is anticipating the trials that are coming for you? And how do you help them set their expectations right? I mean, did you get a group of families that were banging down your door immediately after they heard trials might be coming?
2: Not a lot of calls. They weren't banging down the door. You saw it more on Facebook in the private group chats. You could see the anxiety. And it pops up still.
1: What was the anxiety? Time. Time. How long will it take till we get
2: there? The clock is ticking and... My child is progressing, so we need it now, and I think that's, that's what I've seen.
1: Did you have families that went for the screening process and didn't screen into the trial?
2: Yeah, we've had families who didn't meet all the criteria. We have families I've talked to who are on the wait list, which is painful. The few that I have spoken to, it's there's nothing I can say that could change the outcome of that. All I can do is be there for them. We haven't gotten to the point where maybe I could connect them to another family who's experienced the same disappointment. Some families I have talked to, they, there's that term radical acceptance, and I think that's what that's where they get to, is they just radically accept that this is what it is right now, And. I think they stay on the hope train, because you just never know. I don't want to be the one giving them false hope.
1: Right. So those are such hard words around clinical trials that get thrown around so much, right? There's hope. It's tricky because hope is fluid and it it can mean many different things. Then there's sort of that word cure. It's about finding things that make something better. And it Mm -hmm. it may not be a full-on cure, it's an improvement in, in your capacity to live life well, but it gets thrown around cure, and there's a lot of expectation in the rare disease community around that.
2: I think cure, we try to keep that out of our daily vocabulary. We want to focus on is making sure families are feeling supported and that they feel they're making the right choices for their family and their children, Yeah, you know. So it's
1: interesting to try to help manage expectations of families, of course, with any phase one trial, right? It's called a trial for a reason. It's Mm -hmm. called a trial because we're testing something we've never done before, and we need to know, A, that it's safe, and then B, we have to see what the outcomes are. And while we may have seen them in mice or a small primate, if it's first in human, it is just that, it's first, and and we don't know what the outcome is. Managing expectations is so important. I know when I was fundraising and we finally reached a gene therapy clinical trial I threw that word cure around a lot. I wish I never had because it has not surmounted to be a silver bullet. I know that there are families who have participated who are disappointed in the outcome. So how do you think we can work both as CPN and as a patient advocacy organization like NTSAD to help families manage that expectation when the emotions are running to push it so high. Like, it's just, it's a hard balance to find.
2: Just keeping that conversation out there in all different forms and using that language to address that very
1: Feeling, yeah, feeling, that, yeah. yeah of, of I have yeah. this expectation. I've been waiting so long, and now it's here, and I want it to be everything. You know, making sure that families understand that well, their child's disease progression has been altered, we don't really know the outcome of that yet. Because, right. again, we have to watch it over time, just like everything else that we need to know.
2: Well, yeah, because these families are, or the children that are participating in these first in human trials, they're the pioneers. You don't know what a year will bring two, three, 10. So I think supporting them in that. Yeah. And being realistic, too. You know, that's where we can do some of the work as far as talking to the team, the clinical team in understanding what their expectations are and being able to kind of reiterate. So we're all on the same page.
1: You know, in my experience with different patient disease groups that CPN interfaces with, I often hear around clinical trials a lot of confusion about the meaning of inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria. Why are they necessary in a clinical trial? And then I hear frustration around them. And and I, I want to know what... What do you tell your families when they have that situation where they either don't understand them, so define them for me to your families, and then how to handle the frustration around them?
2: When we think about inclusion criteria, that's all coming from the company, and well, the researchers looking at the natural history data that's out there. And that's why that is so important to participate in any natural history study for your disease because that feeds into that enormous amount of data that they sift through to create the inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria, because they want these trials to be successful. And they want the FDA also to like them as well, just to see that they're valid and that they can easily be measured. You know, it's all done for a reason and it's done very thoughtfully and methodically, all to ensure success, they want it. You know, the, that first phase one is to ensure safety. That's number one. So that criteria is going to speak to, they want that group to show that it's safe. And the, you know, the second might be efficacy and they want to show that it is working and then it'll go on from there. I think the, the companies sponsoring these trials would love nothing more than to include everybody. but. In order to get this treatment or therapy to a bigger population and you know have it be available to treat children, they need to go through these steps first, which is painful. It's hard.
1: So maybe we could conclude by having a little conversation about that tricky word, hope, and what does hope mean in the face of advancements of science?
2: It's a very tricky word because it's thrown around a lot. But I think it can be realistic hope, like not, you don't want to make it too big. You can't, what's the phrase about pinning, pinning all your hope on something? You know, I think it's important to keep it there because that's what keeps us going, but maybe redefining it for families. Well, like you had mentioned about shifting from your focus on Ben to then The greater community and continuing that. So maybe hope shifts from inside your living room to outside in the world, yeah. Keeping things moving.
1: Oh, well, and now just even having this conversation with you is, and for CPN and for the families who are going to listen, is an extension of that same hope that I had for him when he was two, right? It was just to make his life make a difference either mm. a difference for him or a difference for somebody else
2: when i think about all the the kids that i've had the privilege of knowing over the years at ntsad
1: that's what they've been doing yeah you yeah. yeah. well <laughs> i want to thank you for coming in and talking with me today about this cuz i know it's a hard it's a hard conversation. It's, it's, an, it's a new conversation, which is exciting in so many yeah, ways very. and challenging in other ways. And I hope we get a chance to catch up and do it again so that we can keep evolving as the research within your community expands. And we continue to support the families that are facing the challenges of clinical trial.
2: We're grateful to CPN for being our partner. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening. For more stories and conversations, as well as videos, downloadable guides, and decision-making resources in English and Spanish, visit CourageousParentsNetwork.org. CPN is available 24-7 for parents and providers as they strive to provide the best care for the child and the entire family.